Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The post-Civil War landscape of the American West offers escape and opportunities to many new immigrants who come to the country's shore. A few of them brave the journey to the camp town of Missouri Crossing, each looking for a new lease on life in the Dakota Territories. Join the settlers of Missouri Crossing, including Gregory Smith, played by Joaquin, Sister Margaret Miller, played by Monica, Bjorn Hagman, played by Chris, and Craig as the keeper of arcane lore, as we explore the horrors that await us on Down Darker Trails. You've been traveling for weeks now, and the sun has started to go down, and you have made camp. You're sitting next to the fire. Some of the cowboys have brought out their um, banjos and mouth organs, and a little bit of prairie music echoes into the darkness. Sister Margaret, you've taken to sleeping somewhat near the covered wagon, as it were, and you're looking across, some lying on your side. You have a little blanket over you, and you are kind of half heartedly listening to Mrs. Smith as she's reading from a well-worn book. You're starting to drift off. You see that uh, Gregory is basically basking in the reflection of being read to as has been his want these past few weeks. You see uh, Bjorn and his son are next to the fire. It's already going low. There's a little bit of uh, light snoring come coming from his son, Johan's body. And then you just start drifting a little bit. Mrs. Smith continues, mimes in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly. Mere puppets they who come and go, at bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping out from their condor wings, invisible woe. Bjorn, you hear the horses in the distance. They're mostly lowing next to the cattle, but you kind of feel that something's not quite right with them. I'm going to get up for a second quietly as to not awaken my son and cause any distress. Is it just kind of like all, all of us and our families by each other? Or are there a lot of people around us right now? Or Yeah, I mean, you're, it's mostly you and your families. There's a handful of cowpokes and some of the mission workers. There's a few of the cowpokes are on watch um, over the herd as they're kind of resting in the fields of the prairie. So I'm going to kind of slowly make my way towards where the horses are, but to kind of move slowly as to like not give away my position in case there is someone there and just make sure that nothing's out of place. Johan turns over slightly in his sleep, but um, his heavy breathing reassumes as you make your way to do your check on the horses. Gregory, you're feeling uh, very warm and comfortable right now. Your eyes are kind of opening and closing as your wife um, reads to you. How do you feel right now? He definitely feels like the heat of the fire definitely comforts, puts him in a comforting, but it's definitely a sort of a chance one because, you know, being on the road and stuff, he can't really work on his forwards that much on the road. So he's like, he's sort of missing some of the, you know, just the work of, you know, just the hustle and bustle actually you know, doing stuff all day. So now that he's, you know, haven't been forced, you know, to sort of be on the road all day, essentially, he is somewhat tensed up, but moments like this really help him to sort of unwind from the day. Sister Margaret, you're listening to Mrs. Smith kind of half in and out as you're 
slowly falling asleep, but then you kind of awake with a start. You smell something. It's not something you really are used to smelling. It just smells off. You look around and you hear something moving in the distance and you hear the clip-clop of something walking and then you bolt awake as you hear a humanoid scream and you smell blood. Two months earlier, it is the spring of 1867. Gregory, you're reading a letter that you've read several times over and over from your brother Georgie. Uh, Georgie sent you this letter several uh, months earlier, which really prompted your journey. July 13th, 1866 Missouri Crossing. Dear brother, I received your letter last night and I was glad to hear from you and I'm sorry that you that you are unwell. I know what it is to be sick. I have had a number of spells of sickness since I left you and father, but I'm now well and hearty. The country here is wild and the work is tough, but a man can be free here. I have found sound employment on the lumber yard and take home a whole dollar a day. A skilled smith here could command a fortune as work metal is highly prized. I do hope that you and Samantha decide to settle here. I am sorry for what I said at Mother's funeral, and I still think about losing our father at Antietam. At least the good Major Forsyth here keeps us safe from the Indians, and the winter was no worse than in Chicago. Your brother, Georgie. P.S. Please use the enclosed to purchase for me a good bottle of spiced rum. The drink here is good, but all Jerry stocks is corn whiskey. So you're gathered in your what's left of your Chicago home um, with your family at this point. It's early spring, 1867, as I mentioned. And you're, you're looking around at the bare walls. Um, most of the things have already been packed up. And this is basically your last night before you leave on your journey west. You see um, your father and your wife are having a conversation. Um, one of your daughters and your son are kind of like all giddy and excited. Um, they're they're playing with some of their toys that you told them to already have packed up. You as a family, you don't have very much because you liquidated most of your shop in order to raise the funds to make this journey. But you still have some um, small meager possessions that haven't already been loaded into your wagon. Most of it being like the perishable foods and sundries that um, you didn't want to just put out to get wrecked by the morning dew. If you could help it, you realize that um, this is going to be an issue as you travel, but um, you hope that the amount of wax canvas that you purchase should help alleviate such. Your daughter Mary kind of approaches you as she sees you uh, reading the letter again, and she's kind of looking up at you. Yes? What is it? Daddy, uh, why do we have to leave Grandpa and go live with the Red Indians? We're not going to live with the Red Indians. They'll, they'll be nearby. The, the soldiers will keep us safe from them. They're, they'll, be, they'll be there to keep them on their side of the walls and us on our side. Is there really going to be walls there? Probably. Well, if, they, if they're not, I will help, I'll help them make them. I'll make sure to keep, all, keep you safe from all of them. Oh, is, and Uncle Georgie's going to be there too, do you, do you think he's found a wife by now? Uh, I don't know. I imagine he might, he might have found a good woman but at some point. You know, I keep hearing people, all kinds of people going out west. I'm pretty sure he'll find someone. Do you, do you think there's going to be other kids for me to play with? <sighs> I won't lie to you, my child. There, might, there, probably, there will be some. I'm, I go get into that, but you might have to uh, 
make friends with what you with what few there are. There there will be more people coming, but there's going to be a few years where it will be just most likely you and your siblings and maybe one or two other children. A few years, and she nods her head at that. Okay, I, I'm scared though, Daddy. I know. Don't don't worry. I'll be there to keep you safe. I'll keep you all safe. And there'll be soldiers there to keep everyone else safe. Is that what Uncle Georgie says? Yes. She seems to kind of accept this and walks over to your leg and kind of like hugs you at the hip. And I'll make sure like, you know, rub her head and she's like, so hold her to me. So is there anything that you as Gregory wanted to do before leaving in the morning? I think definitely he'll like before he leaves, he'll go like just like a one last little look around the place, like look at all the, the empty, the cold forges, you know, all the missing tools and stuff. Just look at look and you know, look down like the street towards where like he knows what like, the big iron foundries are starting to be popping up more and more. Yeah, and you smell like the the sulfur that even at the, um, this time of evening they're still like smelting away, and it's. It's progress. That's what um, America is doing right now. But it it still feels like you're being pushed out, and you're kind of you notice like all the the discolored patches on the walls of your city apartment, and like where you know crosses or family photos used to hang. And it's just it's weird how like different it looks already, even though you're you haven't quite left it. Is there anything that's like bugging uh, Gregory about uh, this trip? Yes, he is a little bit worried. Like there is, he, he is, he believes his brother and he wants to believe that, you know, that he believes that, you know, the work will provide for his family and stuff. But a part of him is worried that he has heard stories about, you know, like boom towns and stuff that it might you know, be built up for a few years, but then we'll just die and just leave him and his family stranded in the middle of the woods, miles away. And he is... He doesn't want, he doesn't admit it to anyone, but part of him is afraid that it might happen. That's understandable. What like what sort of precautions have you taken to like alleviate like your wife's and children's fears about this? I mean, I kind of imagine Gregory like you know having that internal feel, but but kind of like closing it off and not trying to show it. Yeah. So I definitely think that. You know, he would probably have written to a few people, like maybe like like the closest, like close, something closer to like between you know the between the camp and the, the Chicago to see like you know what what like middling maybe bigger town or city would be between the two. So like if they do need to, you know, leave or something, that like there's some place they can go to afterwards. Yeah, just like little looking at the map, you do realize that Minneapolis and St. Paul is a pretty uh, populous place at this point so like worst case that is a waypoint and so yeah he, he's like you know if the worst does come that you know we can, there is a place we can go to that we're not just going to be you know living in the woods and look for fur trappers and stuff yeah which essentially you still might even if you make it there be living with in the woods with fur trappers <laughs> yeah but he 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 believes like you know he's gonna help them build actually a town out of there make it make a proper civilization yeah does Gregory have like any regrets about leaving? I think he does a little bit, and just in that, you know, he's lived in Chicago in this area for so much of his life, and uh, just sort of, you know, he he he's leaving behind like where most of his history is, and so 
he knows that it is he is trying to do what's make a break for a better future, but it's still it is just it's like leaving a big chunk of the past. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Sister Margaret, you've been having a bit of a lion today. It's it's Sunday, but after your duties uh, with at mass, you've gone through one of your customary walks through the city and you found a likely park bench to like sit down on. You realize that your your walks of the city, um, especially these last few years, have been a lot. It's just been feeling like much more crowded and dirty to you um, and not as pleasant in the past. So you find yourself having to either go to the edge of the city or um, maybe to like a park where hopefully there's like not a lot of like uh, dangerous uh, transient um, folk just biding their time. But either way, it's it's a lot more work for you to kind of get the peace that you once had from your walks here. How are you feeling? I imagine that Sister Margaret would feel a little bit uneasy. Um, new things are in a way sort of scary to her and this constant travel, having to meet new people, meet new places is a bit new for her. So she would probably rely a lot on Father Frank as a familiar face, the familiar comforts, as well as, you know, her traveling partners. As far as the current location, like you said, she would most likely be found trying to be somewhere near nature, not around too many people, but she's definitely a little bit wary of where in nature is a good place to be because there's such such a thing as a prime spot for kidnappings or other things that could happen to honorable women. So she's a little bit, I would say, aware, a little bit hyper aware of her current situation. Seeing as that you're pretty hyper aware, um, you notice that approaching from back towards your convent, you see um, someone wearing a habit pretty similar to your own. She's a plump short woman um, by the name of Sister Sarah. Um, she's kind of been like one of your fellow nuns um, for like the past few years, ever since uh, coming to St. Brian's in Chicago and joining the nunnery here after your wartime service. And she kind of comes up to you, oh, Sister Margaret, oh, where have you been? Oh, I was just taking a walk. Is everything okay, Sister Sarah? Oh, uh, oh, bless my heart. Uh, I... I, I hope so. It just... <sighs> Mother Superior has been looking for you, and she's not happy. Oh, dear. Am I in trouble? Well, I don't see how you can get any more trouble. And she kind of smiles a bit at you. Uh, Margaret gives her a little bit of a sheepish smile and says, I didn't do anything this time, I swear. It was just out on a walk. Right, rightfully so, but... Uh... Perhaps it's best that we not keep uh, Mother Superior waiting. As you say, lead the way, please. And she kind of like turns and kind of waits for you to uh, stand up and start following her. And she keeps turning back around to make sure that uh, you're still following her. And she's just like looking just kind of worried and just really anxious for some reason. But um, you, you approach the the convent at St. Brian's and you make your way back behind the uh, rectory and to the place where Mother Superior uh, has her office. What are you kind of anticipating is going to be happening at this point? 
I believe at this point there would be a fair bit of anxiety coursing through Sister Margaret, wondering what it is that she could have possibly done wrong. And in her mind, she's keeping a sort of inventory and going through it of whatever petty sins she may have done this week. It could be maybe she had a little bit too much of a sip of communion wine, or maybe she took a bit of a longer walk and a longer nap. So maybe she skirted um, duties around the convent cleaning up. So she's kind of keeping inventory of that, flipping from thought to thought, trying to see which one is going to get her in trouble. So you approach um, the office door and... You see uh, one of your friends from the convent, um, her name's Sister Michael, and she's kind of like, um, kind of sitting um, at a chair outside the office, and she kind of is biting her nails a little bit. And when you notice her, she quickly pulls her hand away from her mouth and kind of closes her eyes for a second, then looks down at the ground. And you could see them, like through the crack in the door, Mother Superior just her she has a big she's not a huge woman but she has one of those like bigger presences if you understand what i'm saying like uh like a big personality and she kind of like commands a lot of fear and respect from some of the other uh nuns and your organization what do you do i think at this point the tips of my fingers are growing cold and clammy she's flexing her hands kind of trying to get feeling back into them and when she peeks in through the door and sees mother superior a chill goes down her spine so very cautiously uh, sister margaret is going to knock on the door and kind of pop her head in as meekly as she can and say uh pardon me mother superior uh, sister sarah said you wanted to see me please enter she says and you walk in and then when you immediately don't do so, she looks at um, the door sternly and says, close that. Yes, mom, right away. So you close the door and then you turn around and she appears to be like standing and kind of gazing out the window at this point. Her eyes aren't on you as well uh, at all. She's kind of just like, she's looking out west um, at something outside and she doesn't mean to be meeting your gaze at all you find that this is a tactic that she'd sometimes do keep keep some of the uh more junior sisters and nuns waiting it's kind of like a power play on her part how does how does that kind of like make you feel incredibly nervous sister margaret is the more that this is dragged out the more that she's thinking on even more petty sins that she may have done and she's getting that that telltale heart urge to just confess everything, but she's afraid to confess everything in case it's something completely unrelated and she just kind of gave herself up. So she's going to very carefully and quietly kind of skulk her way up to Mother Superior's desk, stand in front of it with her hands clasped in front of herself, uh, head bowed, looking at her, you know, at the edge of the ed- desk and just wait for someone to address her. And the uncomfortable silence just continues on much longer than you would care for it to. But almost as if you passed the test, Mother Superior, still gazing out the window, um, addresses you and says, Sister Margaret, your laziness has been noticed. One of your age should be setting a better example for your younger sisters. I mean, Sister Michael has been covering for you long enough. Can you explain what has been going on? Um, uh, uh, Mum, I'm not really sure. Uh, are you 
What is this in regards to? Is it because I took a long walk today? What do you think it is regard to? At this point, Margaret is um, starting to feel a little sweaty around her hairline. And she is kind of fiddling with her cuticles and kind of holding onto her cold fingers. Um, I can't say I'm really sure, ma'am. Um, I, I was just brought here after my walk. I, I did do all my duties this week. It was something I missed. She turns to face you and her eyes seem to pierce you and like kind of stare into your soul. You almost feel sorry for whatever she must have been staring at outside the window because this is a stare like you've you've had it before and you don't like to get it often, but she's just like kind of judging your statement and kind of seems to be like considering her next move. Eventually she speaks up again and says, Sister Margaret, what exactly are you looking for out of your time here? That throws her off guard for a minute, and now she's feeling very petrified, like a child that's getting scolded by the parents, you know, being caught red-handed doing something. So she straightens up, and her hands are balled up into tiny fists, just so that she can kind of feel something, her short nails digging into her palms, and she says, Ma'am, of course, I'm, I'm here to grow closer with our Lord and to to preach his wonderful word of love and acceptance. What does that have to do with, with anything? Is this what you truly want, to preach? Isn't this something more suited for our, our brethren? Do you think it is a woman's place to spread the word of God? I believe the love of God is, is in my heart so loudly that I have to just preach from the mountaintops, preach to anyone who will hear me. And while, yes, it's traditionally a, a job for the brothers, I, I do believe I can assist with the women and, and the children in, in travels. She draws a deep breath and seems to consider your words. Well, I cannot blame you for wanting to get out. You do preach very loudly and do very many other things loudly as well. Frankly, I find that quite annoying, and we are not here to scare people away from Mother Church's embracing arms. Would you agree, sister? Yes, of course. Of course I agree. Um, I do apologize. If my tone is perhaps too loud, I can, I can make myself smaller. A woman of God should be meek and humble, for that is how you set the example. Of course. And she turns, and you feel like weight lifted from you as her gaze comes off you for a second and she kind of takes a slight turn and gazes out the window again. Look there, what do you see? Margaret takes a step closer and kind of leans over the desk to look out the window, half expecting to see a bunch of birds turn into stone from Mother Superior's Gorgon stare. I'm not quite sure what you mean, Mum. I see I see life, I see gardens, I I see animals. Specifically over there, and she indicates you wouldn't have noticed it um, because it's kind of like there's a bunch of like uh, crates and boxes and barrels and wagons kind of like lining the side of the street, almost right, right up against the side of some of the buildings. And for a second, you kind of thought it was the buildings themselves. But now you notice a lot of the carts have people moving around in them and loading them up, which you feel like this is like kind of an odd occurrence for it being a Sunday for so much physical labor to be going on? Ooh, um, there is a lot of commotion out there, a lot of coming and going. Uh, are we having somebody new joining the convent? Quite the opposite, in fact. I know, I don't know why, actually, but Father Francis, 
he does see something in you and says that he admires your spirit. I don't know what he could be talking about, but some of our brethren of the Society of Jesus shall be making their way west to set up a mission in the wilds of the frontier. And our sisterhood here at St. Brian's has been asked by the Jesuits to contribute to such efforts. Um, I'm not quite sure what you're saying, Mom. Would you like me to assist Father Francis in getting his supplies ready for travel? Yes, that and many much more. You and Sister Michael shall be our contribution. We're, we're, we're traveling with him, she says, trying to hold back her excitement. Indeed. And some of the other brothers and hangers-on, and I believe that there's a few families and a a lot of Negroes with cattle going that way as well. Oh, I see, Mum. I shall be very careful around them. Yes, they shall be the least of your concerns going west. Have you heard of the noble savage? Do you mean the red man? Yes. In a way that uh, Pierre Marquette did so a while ago, the Brotherhood, the Society of Jesus, deems it fit to educate and civilize the land and bring the word of God to all those on this glorious continent. Oh, I, I, I understand. Yes, um, I wholeheartedly agree. We can certainly domesticate the savages. Yes, and while, while your loud preaching might scare off some civilized folk around here, maybe that's the only way to bring some of the natives in line out west. Have you ever heard of the Dakota Territories? Uh, only briefly, ma'am. Is that where we're going? Yes. That is that is quite of a long, long journey, is it not? That is why, in my infinite wisdom, I seem to fit to send you and Sister Michael there. Yes, of, of course. I'm, I'm very thankful for this opportunity to prove myself. And she smiles, like, and you kind of have this feeling inside of you that, like, she's, she's ditching you. Yeah, Sister Margaret. <laughs> definitely gets that um but she's a little excited about the travel so she kind of bites her lip to hide her smile and looks down to kind of pretend that this is still a punishment in some way even though in her mind this is an amazing opportunity to have very long naps at the back of a wagon (laughs) yes and then mother superior then turns her gaze upon you one last time seeming to consider you're still here be sure to not miss your wagon. Of course, Mom. Thank you so much for your time. I will get my things right away and assist Father Francis. That is all. Thank you. And she will bow her head and walk backwards out of the door. And once the doors are closed, she's going to kind of give a sharp look to Sister Michael, assuming that that's who kind of ratted her out about her skirting her duties. And then just look at the floor and kind of speed walk her way to her room to get things ready. Uh, okay, and uh, you don't really have a whole lot to get ready, but uh, is there any uh, additional preparations or things that you'd like to do before leaving in the morning? Uh, she would just take extra care to pack up her Bible, her rosary. She'll grab a few extra printed Bibles if there are any for you know any children that she may encounter. And uh, she'll see if she can talk to any of the other nuns around. Uh, She'll see if she can talk to any of the other nuns around to see if there's any words of the native languages that she needs to be aware of. And then other than that, she'll just be on her way to Father Francis to help him out. All right. And again, like most of the sisters that you run into seem incredibly shocked that 
you are being sent away and they they wish you well tell you that they they'll pray for you but they have no idea what sort of like like languages or words the the natives might speak and like some just say that like there's like a overarching uh native tongue some say that there's every village has its own tongue and that they would be terrified to go out and settle these un, unpopulated lands. Bjorn, you and your son have been living at the workhouse for a few weeks. It's a very small cramped bunkhouse attached to a cotton mill that you've been getting itinerant work with um, for the past few weeks. And it's incredibly crowded. There's dozens of um, men, women, and children just living in these like sort of bunks have been crammed together. It's it's always very noisy. It's always like incredibly bad smelling. There's no room or privacy to, to speak of. But this is the work that you've been able to find for the past few weeks since coming here. You made your, you've been making your way west um, as well as you can over the past few months, ever since um, arriving by steamership last fall. But there wasn't a whole lot you could have done over the winter, and it just so happened that uh, this is like probably the best wayside in Chicago that you could have possibly hoped for, even though it's you're basically living hand to mouth as to avoid dipping into your savings. You feel probably pretty terrible about having to have your son work in such dire conditions. The the safety in a cotton mill is atrocious and a lot of times like you've seen some fellow workers mangled or injured on the job you're always breathing in tiny fibers that make your lung itch there's uh, smoke from a smelting plant next door it's you always feel like every night you wake up covered in this grime and every day when you get back from your uh, shift at the mill that grime has been coated in this like fibrous material and it's it is not the wildness of america that you had hoped for so you're looking for just like anything that you can to further your way west but at this point this night you managed to scrape off some of the filth and you made your way leaving your son in the care of others for a bit and you made you've made your way to a haunt that you found over the past few weeks where your origins or your your state of poverty as it would be although you're not um, incredibly poor you've been pretty um, frugal in your efforts to finance your trip so it may have um, kind of made you seem like of a lower class than you actually are in that nature but you make your way to one of these haunts where they um, sell a lot of corn whiskey and women sell themselves and you are you have decided to find comfort in the arms of one of the women who had decided to sell her um, her services to you. Uh, what are your thoughts tonight? Like, how did how did you get into this position? You mean the position of being working at this place and being at the 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 establishment I'm at right now? Kind of, but also like this sort of like emotional state. Well, you know, it was the shock of the case I was working on and losing my wife at the same time it was almost like a pivot point in my life where like, not only did I work on this total, this dramatic case 
that just kind of shook me at my foundation, at my roots. Then my wife died. And it's like this double, you know, in tandem of a double one-two punch that threw me off my axis. And instead of fighting fate and fighting the the what had all happened to me and put myself back on the axis I was on before, I decided to see where this trajectory was going to lead me. You know, I could have either sat there and I could have been in this huge amount of suffering and pain emotionally and with my son trying to keep a facade of like keeping it together or we could start anew. And I think with him, it was like he knew that that's what he needed to do at this moment. When he's younger, he always had this wild imagination and and this this thirst of knowledge of other areas and other places outside of Norway. And he felt like right now, what better time to go to the new world than to hear, you know, the expansion West and all this wonder and starting new. And also is to keep him, you know, from thinking too much. And I think right now with him working at this cotton mill, he's probably starting to feel the itch where it's like, okay, he's becoming too stagnant. You know what I mean? Like this, not so much for the work, but for so much like his progression has stopped. And it's like, so he goes to places like this whorehouse to be around others and to, to kind of absorb, you know, the lack of a better term, the culture of the area. I'd hear stories about America that usually the people he talks to probably in the cotton mill that he works in are immigrants themselves who don't know that much or probably are pretty dull when it comes to conversations like him, because he's a rather intelligent man. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're like accepted in this establishment? Cause like you're both a foreigner and you're, you're an ugly guy. You're, you have appearance of 20. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I do think he's accepted because I think he's a console, you know, I think that like he probably threw people off because like, you know, he would go in there and read his books. And he may have a drink occasionally and read a book. And the reason he did that is because most establishments won't let him in there because he's an immigrant and he's ugly and he was dirty. And like you said, he's frugal with his money right now. He's saving his money. What better place to get a cheap drink at a moment away from, you know, the 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 cramped confines of the the cotton mill area where he works into a whorehouse. And like I said before, he occasionally may sleep with one, but it's not like something he does regularly. You know, he's just mainly there. And I could see totally where probably these women have grown comfortable around him because he has this genuine curiosity about everyone's backstory and where they came from. And, you know, if you want to, you could tell your whole life story to him and he would be totally willing to listen because he feels like he's learning from it, you know? Yeah. And despite your less than attractive appearance, you've kind of got um, sort of an acceptance here. And while you would have preferred to just um, stay in and with one of the ladies chambers for a bit and, you know, chat some more, she kind of like had to eventually push you out because it's either she's going to charge you again or you need to get out so she can make some more business going on. So you kind of like stinking of sex and sweat and grime, you kind of leave the area and like prop open your book at the bar probably and have some cheap watered down beer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I'll just kind of read and I'll, you know, like, I also think that like, you know, what better place to learn about like the culture, what's going on in the city than the underbelly where people aren't going to sugarcoat shit, you know, and it's almost like this little bit of danger, but he feels comfortable around danger, you know, and around these elements having been a lawman before. Yeah. And as you're, you're both, it's like an odd thing. Cause like bringing a, even today, bringing a book into a, like a social set, I'm um, studying either you send some signals, like either like, Hey, I'm intelligent or I don't want to be bothered, but either way, like, it's like, nowadays bringing your laptop to a coffee and like to start writing and stuff like you're you're there and like the you you have bought a drink and you're not just like schmoozing you you bought drink you you bought um the services of a woman um tonight so 
the, like the proprietor hasn't tried to kick you out or anything. But um, you can see this is a place of um, social gathering, of a business, of commerce. Like shady deals are being made um, on the table. Like you hear rumors of uh, local politicians um, doing pretty corrupt things. And it kind of reminds you of back home and just further makes you want to uh, continue heading west and leave this area behind. But you do hear a man wearing like um like a uh, he's like wearing like a a like a light gray like button down shirt and some dungarees and he appears to be incredibly clean, which is a rarity in this part. And you notice that he's been doing like talking to the man behind the bar and he seems to be ordering like hard alcohol but he's asking for it to still be in barrels and cases and some small beer and stuff and looking basically he's like looking to strike a deal on purchasing portable li- um, liquor i kind of look at is he like right next to me or is he kind of like further down the bar or uh he's not like right next to you there like there's a few people on stools between you and him but uh, it's like you're kind of leaned forward, um, absorbed in your book, and like the two people between you are kind of conversing. So like your view and is not blocked of him, and you can kind of make out a little bit of the conversation that he's having with the bartender. And you hear like the word, um, you hear the word Dakota um, brought up a few times. You um, you you hear like uh, the term almost six hundred head brought up, and lots of hard work ahead of us, but we're going to uh, basically be set. So <clears throat> my interest is obviously peaked because I one I was going to say before, one thing about being in an area like this too is you usually will probably come across people who are heading west or who may, you know, like like it's almost like LinkedIn <laughs> in a weird way. Like I could see like people who are, who may have opportunities. So I hear that. Now, two questions. One, am I familiar with this barkeep who runs this establishment? And two, am I able to tell by the conversation, the snippets I can catch if this um, gentleman in the gray suit it knows this barkeeper? Like, are they familiar or does it seem like they're making introductions? So if you've you've been um, for the past few weeks um, since you decided to winter in Chicago, you've been kind of familiar with the bartender. Like you, you caught his names a couple of times, but like. Like you're not like friends or anything, but um, you could definitely tell from like the body language that um, given out to like this was like a first introduction, and like after like a few drinks, they got into like some sort of business transaction. Okay, so I'm going to close my book and put it under my arm and pick up my beer. Is the seat? Is there an opening to the other side of him, the opposite side that I'm on that doesn't have people between it? Uh, yes, it's. I mean. It's always busy here, but um, it seems like a lot of the um, action is taking place behind closed doors, so to speak. So I'm going to go to the opposite side of him, and I'm going to listen in the conversation, kind of like rest my elbow, you know, a little bit on there, lean back. And then uh, I'm going to wait for, like, there seemed to be a little pause and, like, you know, if the bartender has to leave away or there's a little pause in the conversation, I don't want to interrupt. And you hear the, the man in, like, the the gray shirt and the dungarees say, are you serious? A Wells Fargo? How long ago? And you hear the bartender was starts um, spinning this tale about a, a Wells Fargo carriage that just a few days ago had has left Chicago and started heading west towards, he doesn't really say the name of it, but he says, you know, that place where um, 
uh, Lewis and Clark crossed the Missouri River. Do I know the name of that place? Missouri Crossing, by chance? Or can uh, I roll this? Make me know? a history roll. <laughs> yeah, there we go. First oh, roll right. of the game. I know, right? So I got history 50%. So let me go ahead and roll that. Sorry, I'm all trying to like, trying to um find a way to interject to make a good impression here. That's what I'm trying to do here. Oh, missed it by three. So can I spend luck? So you can spend luck. And like, while you don't want to be spending luck all the time because it takes away from your um, very yeah. finite pool, something like that's three is not a bad thing to spend. Do yeah, small that's spend what on. That's what I'm going to do. Bump it down to 32. So so that gives you a uh, regular success. Yeah, regular success. So, yeah, apparently uh, you heard of this place because, as you mentioned, uh, Chicago's been like a like a waypoint for people heading west, such as you yourself. And you know that during the Lewis and Clark expedition, there was a camp um, of uh, Mandan um, tribes people as well as like 7th Cavalry um, regiments camped around there. Uh, additionally, like you've heard uh, rumors of a small town that's starting to spring up um, around that area. And it seems filling in conversational gaps that that's where this guy in gray is heading. Oh, I, I know that place. Uh, that's um, that's a Missouri crossing over there by the Mandan people, yeah? And like, the bartender uh, looks at you, and then the man in gray looks at you too, but he seems a bit more surprised. Oh, what are you, uh, one of those uh, cartographers there? And he indicates your book. Oh, no, no. Name's uh, Joel Hagman. I, I put out my hand. He looks down at it, and um, as a, I'm looking at him sternly, yeah, by the way, you know what I mean? He seems to consider you for a minute, and then. Um, kind of gives himself a little shrug and then extends his hand. Says Samuel Baker, you could call me Sam. I'm uh, one of them drovers heading west now. Oh, don't you know? Hey, that's good, Sam. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I know. Uh, I uh, I'm here new to uh, America. Yeah, I used to be a constable in Norway where I come from. My son and I and uh, can't but help over here that you're heading up there to the to the Dakota territories there. Yeah, uh, that that's right. Uh, me and my boys, we're uh, we're heading west to. You know, finally deserve a long retirement after our years of service for our country. And you got ourselves some cattle and we're going to be ranchers. Ah, that's the American dream. You're in the Great War, right? Uh, he kind of Tough. he kind of looks at you for a minute and then says something like that. Oh, yeah. Hey, you are, you know, um, myself, I'm pretty uh, handy at the steel. Yeah, yeah. You used to be a lawman, like I said. My son and I are looking to go up there, head up there to Dakota Territories. And if uh, you don't mind me asking, uh, you have an open position. You're looking to hire any hands. Really good at riding. My son's a hard worker, too. It seems to stop to consider you for a moment. And it says, you ride. You say, you have your own horse. Out of character. I have money to buy one, right? I don't have one, I would think, in Chicago. Do I have one in Chicago? I mean, I don't know how. I can imagine I don't have anywhere to put it. Um, right? <laughs> yeah. So... If you're trying to save money, you and you've been you've been probably um, making way your way west, um, like through you know roads and rail. You might have had one at one point, but if you've been wintering I in Chicago, it. you probably sold it, so you don't have to pay stable yeah. fees. But uh, well, unfortunately, I don't got a horse. But uh, you know, I uh, really good in my head, really good in my hands. And uh, you, uh, if you were to give me a horse and loan that I could use up there, trust me, I won't let you down. I'm not your. I'm not your average type. Don't let the appearances fail you. 
you know, I'm not what you think I am, I'm sure, by first impression. Well, Mr. Hagman, uh, do you consider yourself a gambling man? Uh, I don't, no, not really. I got my, uh, I got my son's well-being in mind, and I got my money saved up to, like you, make the American dream up there. I want to go up there and start a good life for my son. That's what I'm doing all this for. Not for myself, but for my son. Well, as noble as your intentions are, you must understand that this this journey is not a sure, sure thing, and we are all gambling men if we're going to undertake it. I don't call it a gambler when you follow a dream. You catching what I mean? This is an American dream, right? We're going up there, we're going to the West. That's what everyone is doing now. Yeah? I want to call it a gamble if you're following a dream. He seems to consider what you're saying a little bit, and then kind of like kind of turns his back so it's um he's his front's facing towards you and he's kind of like like is using his body position to kind of like keep uh the bartender out of the conversation sort of hmm. and then he says well then bjorn how do you feel about working with negroes we're all men i uh you know i have no problem working with it matter of fact i find myself and i tap my book I, I like other cultures. That's why I want to move up there, yeah? We're all immigrants here, aren't we? And you say that, and many people in a desperate situation might say anything, but do you truly, truly feel like you could work with them? Why not? You think people are courteous to me because of this, and I motion the pock marks all over my face. Why my suffering isn't the same of the African. Uh, it's not quite pe like people are friendly to me. If your first impression was any kind of indicator. No, I don't got any issues. And then he lowers his voice even more and says, how do you feel about working for one? <laughs> no problem whatsoever. Who am I to be? I just kind of shake my head for a second. And I'm like, no, I have no problem with it. If it follows my dream, it follows my dream. Well, let's see how uh, real your dreams are. We, we're leaving at first light tomorrow and we'll see if we can wrestle up another horse. But, uh, you know, if this, if you truly are willing to gamble and he's ignoring your whole uh follow your dream speech, then uh, you should meet us over by the south side of the sh um, city where we have our herd raising. Yeah, it sounds like a deal. Real quick, real quick, I want to ask you something before I do. My original idea was to see if I could save him money somehow on this deal for alcohol because I knew the bartender a little bit. And I have a 60% in persuade, but I don't know if persuade would go with that. But I'm thinking like maybe I can like look at the bartender and kind of be like, you know, hey, Hook this man up. You know what I mean? I know that you're... Sure. Um, let's see. They took away the bargain skill. You, you have a praise. I ha only have 0.5% of 5%. So, yeah. That's okay. Not, yeah. So, uh, you can make me a persuade roll, but um, I would need to have like a one of the, a high success for it to actually do anything. So, it's, it's a high for 60%. Like probably like a, like a half skill. So, it's probably 30. 30 bill. Okay. I'll, I'll try it. Might as well. Oh, God. Now Botch is going to be stupid. <laughs> Don't worry, then. I won't persuade. I won't try to persuade him. I'm, I've already made a good impression. And... If historical APs with a supernatural flair are your jam, then The Ultimate Evil is just right for you. With inspiration pulled from the Satanic Panic, The Ultimate Evil takes place in the 80s as four young men reunite to discover the mysteries that surround their childhood mentor's death. 